Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 97 people have died so far after a condo collapse in Surfside, Florida, near Miami. Officials say eight others are unaccounted for. It is nightmarish to think about a collapse of a building where so many lived, happening in the middle of the night when they were asleep. Today, where we live, we wanted to focus on building safety. What protections do tenants have, whether they live in an apartment or a condo? We want to help answer your questions, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, coming up, we talk about concrete, and later we get an update on the crumbling foundations issue that affects homeowners in Connecticut. First, joining us on the phone is Shelley White. She's Director of Litigation and Advocacy at New Haven Legal Assistance. Shelley, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Now, there's a lot we don't know about this Florida condo collapse, but when we think about the repairs in a building where uh, tenants are typically responsible for, and then what are landlords and building owners responsible for, Shelley? Well, I mean, under state law, of course, landlords are, you know, responsible for essentially um, maintaining the property in, in decent, safe um condition. Uh, They're responsible for complying with all municipal housing codes um, and state building codes. They're required to keep common areas in a clean and safe condition and provide, you know, proper heat and ventilation and what have you. Um, The, you know, the the devil is in the, you know, the ability to enforce those um, responsibilities. That was my next question. So when we think about municipal housing codes and if a tenant is living in a place that uh, is deemed that they think is unsafe or there are major issues, uh, what recourse do they have? And, you know, how do you get the the state or the city or town where you live to follow up with that if the the landlord is not uh, addressing the issue? So it's going to be your local housing code office, which depending on the town you are in, um, may be, it may be, um, you know, part of City Hall, it may be the, in the Department of Health. Um, I think that's one of the big issues throughout Connecticut is that if you're not familiar with the housing code agency for your town, it can be difficult to find it. And I know at my office, sometimes we get calls from sort of outlying areas, and we have to scramble to try to figure out, you know, and try to remember who enforces the housing code for that particular um, area. But that's that's your first line is obviously to call the landlord and to report the, the problems to the landlord. But if the landlord is not being responsive to those um, to those calls and requests, then, then you contact the housing code agency. Mm. Now, 
we've all had good landlords and bad, right? And so if, right. if a landlord is not addressing your it, your concern, you're still living in a place that they own. And so are there any issues or worries that tenants would feel like, you know, they could be evicted if, if uh, you know, they're, they're hassling their landlord to fix something? Um, there are some protections um, about the, you know, about the ability to, to try to terminate a lease for a tenant. You know, in Connecticut, if the lease is up, the landlord doesn't have to renew it. But if the lease is up and the landlord doesn't want to renew it, and it turns out the tenant had made a complaint to housing code, then the tenant could raise an issue of, of retaliation. Um, the, um, you know, the, the larger issue is that in Connecticut, you know, we keep housing code and tenant responsibilities, for example, with respect to rent, are very, are, are very different and separate. Tenant has a right, mm. has an obligation on the rent, and the only exception to that might be if the, if the property is completely not inhabitable, you know, not a running, no running toilet, no heat, something along those lines. Um, but the tenant's requirement is that if they're not, you know, if they're not getting their landlord to fix things in the apartment, then they have to call the housing code people. They have to stay on the housing code people to make sure that orders are issued, that orders are complied with. And if they're not complied with, then it's their responsibility to go to court and file um, an action in housing court to enforce the housing code. So it, it puts the situation you see where there are kind of systems within a building that maybe should be addressed proactively by a, a municipality, you see kind of that the, the total onus, more or less, is on the tenant. And if tenants become weary, if they become, I call and nobody calls me back, um, I, they issue orders and the landlord ignores it, I'm busy, I work nine to five, how do you expect me to go over to housing court, which also is only open nine to five, and file papers in housing court? So we you have a system in place that is pretty much relying on tenants to um, notify their landlords, obviously, about the problems, but then to notify the cities about the problem, because the problem could also be affecting other tenants, not just the, the, the one person who, you know, maybe has the leak. The leak could be coming from the neighbor upstairs who doesn't even realize there's a leak. You're hearing Shelley White on Where We Live. She's Director of Litigation and Advocacy at New Haven Legal Assistance. As we talk about uh, the obligations that landlords and building owners have, we're talking about this uh, after what happened in Surfside, Florida. If you have a question about your rights, what protections are in place to keep you and your family safe, the number 888-720-9677. Again, that's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, earlier, Shelley, you mentioned there's uh, municipal housing codes, and then there's building codes. So can you talk a little bit more about that and what the building code uh, really covers? Um, in the building code is, is usually more of a state, but there is in fact a state building code. And usually the building, um, the people who enforce the building code, they may actually be the same people enforcing the, the housing code, um, but often they work in the same office. Um, and there's just certain people that are more familiar with um, with structural with structural issues and and I give you an example was in New Haven maybe two years ago I believe on Norton Street there was a property and I'm not sure I remember the entire story but the housing code people were over at the building 
and they were um, th- they were, as I recall, responding to a tenant complaint about something that was wrong in the building, and the housing code inspector saw something that concerned him, and then he called the person in New Haven who is in charge of the building code, and that person came over to the building and went down into the basement and you know looked you know, under all the things that are down in the basement and looked at, the, you know, more or less, I guess, what we call the bones of the building and discovered um, a structural problem that was so significant that he condemned the building immediately. And you had a, a property that was um, completely filled with tenants. I, I can't remember the exact number. I believe it was 44, 44 to 50 families living in that property, many of them at work that day. And they came home from work that evening to find out that their their building had been condemned. And it was serious enough that they, you know, never returned. I mean, they were able to retrieve their belongings in, in the end, but um, but they never returned to that building and, and had to permanently relocate elsewhere. And, you know, at the time, I remember thinking how catastrophic that was for the families. And I suppose in light of what happened at Surfside, you know, it's it's important to remember that we owe a debt of gratitude that the, the building code um, people stepped in and, and identified the issue and, and people's lives were saved. But again, it's it's a little bit of happenstance that that, that happened. Um, that, you know, a, a sharp-eyed housing code person saw something that concerned him, brought in brought in the the, um, the building people and they took a look. And we don't do a very good job of, of you know, proactive review of, of properties to make sure that they're safe and, um, and, and in decent condition and that all the housing codes are being, and, and building codes are being complied with. And that was an issue, I believe, in Surfside, right? So this building right. has, hasn't been inspected. I think they have inspected every 40 years. And so I'm wondering, in Connecticut, in terms of, you know, in an area of our country, again, we've got a lot of older housing. Uh, you know, what uh, does the state require for areas to look to make sure buildings are structurally sound, Shelley? Um, I think, I mean, we don't do a lot of work around the building code, but I, I think that most of the time this is going to happen when an owner of property, whether it be a single-family home or rent, he takes out a permit to make repairs or to do something significant. That's going to bring the building people um, people in, taking a look at it. There was a, a property in New Haven recently where um, they um, – the tenants all moved out. They, they, the, a new owner came in. They moved all the tenants out. They, they're adding a third floor. At that point, the building people are going to come in. They're going to issue a building permit. They're going to watch what the – they're going to come in all the time and be watching what the um, the new owners are doing with respect to the repairs that they're making. They're going to issue a certificate – you know, eventually they're going to issue a certificate of occupancy indicating that all the repairs were made and the building is safe for new occupancy. And so those are – kind of our protections when the landlords are making or the owners are making um, modifications to their property, then you have the building code people in making sure that they're being done in a safe way. Um, I'm not sure, and, and I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I'm not sure how often they do that just routinely, just just because um, they're, you know, the period of time that has passed. Uh, New Haven has a uh, licensing uh, program that uh, I think is fairly unique to New Haven. I'm not sure many other municipalities have it, but at least in theory, all landlords with 
some limited exceptions are required to be licensed, and in order to be licensed, you have to be um, your property has inspected, and then you get a one-year license or a two-year license or a three-year license, depending on when they did inspection, how many of your properties were determined to have you know code violations, and then they come out you know and they renew your license every so many years. It's a it's a good program in, in theory because it's proactive. It, it's, you know, it's designed to not rely on tenant complaints. It's designed to be proactive. But it's only as good as the number of inspectors you have. It's only as good as the systems you have in place for enforcement. It's only as good as you have in place the ability to track the landlords and with properties being bought and sold and transferred and sometimes they're the same owners under different names, um, it can become very challenging for New Haven to stay on top of that. But that's kind of the ideal. You know, that would be the ideal from my, my point of view. So far, we've been talking about tenant rights within apartment buildings, but what changes when someone owns a condo and they're in a shared building, Shelley? Well, again, you know, my office mostly deals with renters, but when you're in a condo, part of the issue is that the condo, you know, the condo owner is, you know, obviously responsible for for the maintenance of their own individual unit. But now if the condo building needs a new roof, well, that's a shared responsibility of the condo association. And I think that's what we saw in Surfside is that, you know, one condo owner doesn't have the ability to say, we need a new roof, um, and, you know, and I'm going to go out and hire a roofer to come out here. They can't do it. The condo association has to do it, and they have to do it with, um, you know, they have to do it for everybody. So the roof is going to be everybody, and everybody's going to pay for it. And I think what we read in the paper with Surfside was that it, you know, because of the years of not doing anything, it had been, you know, a lot of things had come up and had been neglected, and then they brought people out to say this is the work that needs to be done. But it's going to be, and I forget the figure, but it was, you know, many millions of dollars, and then you divide that by the number of homeowners, and when they get the bill, it's not, you know, a $500 assessment or a $1,000 assessment. It was a, a massive assessment. Now people are going to balk at that kind of massive assessment, um, and and so now, you know, kind of now you're now it's kind of different. You're relying on the owners of the condos to, you know, understand kind of what their collective responsibilities are. And, you know, Surfside is certainly a wake up call that, you know, deferred maintenance is highly problematic if it's going to cost people their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shelley, we've been talking about this again because of the Surfside uh, situation, which you've referenced. Uh, what kind of conversations do you think we need to be happening having here in Connecticut? You know, lawmakers come on our show pretty regularly, and we think about the work that the legislature does in terms of you know housing for all, but also the fact that you want to make sure that these properties are safe for people. I think it points out the need for you know very um, robust. Um, housing and building code um, personnel within each community, making sure that each community has sufficient people in place. New Haven had a massive fire, you know, maybe two or three years ago. And at that time, there was a lot of soul-searching about um, the many code violations that had contributed to this massive fire in which at least two people, I believe, were killed and, um, and many others 
you know, displaced and lots of, you know, pounding about what, you know, what should we have done differently. But it really did come down to the fact that they only had at that time, I believe, four inspectors. Um, I counted the other day and they have 14. Um, I, I know from personal experience that is not nearly enough um, for, for what, you know, for what we see in New Haven. But that's, you know, certainly better than, you know, the four they had, you know, only you know, I think two or three years ago, it's important to have these people in place. It's important for them to have computerized systems, but it's also important to know and be able to keep track of how buildings are changing hands and who's the actual owner of the building. I mean, that's a tough one for housing code people. Um, You know, the property is in somebody's name. The person has moved to Israel. I mean, sometimes you actually have anecdotal information about who's managing who's managing the property because the manager doesn't have to be on the land records, but, you know, it can be challenging for them to find out who's, who's running the property. And then, of course, you need their permission to go into the property because the, only in unique and very serious circumstances can the city just, you know, barge into a building unannounced and without, um, and without consent. So they're going to need, they, so they need to know who owns it, and they need to have access to the tenants in order to be able to get to be able to go into the building. Um, and those are some of the challenges. But um, So it's, it's complicated, but I do think that money for, money for housing code people um, and building code people and money to ensure that they can work proactively doing inspections and not, um, and not just responding to tenant complaints because that's, you know, that's not good enough. Um, mm-hmm. That's not the best way to, to ensure that buildings are kept safe. I have one more question for you, Shelley. We got a listener sure. comment. Uh, this person lives in New Haven, and their landlord company called them and asked them to sign a waiver to not do the Livable Cities Initiative inspection, which is that annual licensing inspection by the city. Quote: Because of COVID safety concerns, uh, what do you think about that? Should somebody really reconsider signing a waiver when we think about all of the issues we just talked about? Um. I'm, I'm sorry. They were they were they wanted a waiver from the inspection, or they wanted a waiver if there was an inspection and somebody got ill. Uh, it said the landlord company called them to ask them to sign a waiver to not do the inspection under the Livable Cities in, uh, initiative because of quote COVID safety concerns. Well, as a, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I think as a practical matter, during the height of the emergency. I'm not sure that Livable Cities was doing any um, indoor inspections. I mean, many of my sure. clients, you know, were saying to me that they were they were living with bad conditions because of the fear of COVID, and it was very hard for me to ever say to them, no, 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 you you know, you really should be allowing you know them in. And we've been trying what what I know that Livable Cities did often was they would ask the tenant to take a picture of the problem. Sometimes livable cities would, you know, knock on the door, depending on how serious the thing, you know, the, the tenant might go come outside and, and go somewhere else physically. And then livable cities, people would go inside quickly and take some pictures that they could look at more carefully later. But I wouldn't do a waiver. I think that people can come in and do the inspections and tenants can still Sorry, tenants can still protect themselves by maintaining their masks and maintaining their distance from the, um, you know, from the from the inspectors themselves. I, I think that you know now with you know so many people being vaccinated, and they and the positivity rate being down at least for the moment, that this is this is, 
is in fact the moment when we have to get back to doing these inspections again in a in a um, in a socially appropriate and safe manner, mm-hmm. and because we're not, you know, it's not February and uh, March and April of 2020 anymore. So a lot of stuff has, a lot of stuff has happened in this last, you know, 16 months. Um, I, I get calls every day about severe mice and, and rodent infestation that's gone un, unchecked. Um, I'm not, you know, these things happen because we we haven't been able to get people in and haven't been able to get properties inspected. But now that where things are a little bit better, I think that we can can allow them in with with the proper procedures. And I wouldn't agree to to waive anything. I'm not even sure they can do that. Well, Shelley White, thank you so much for giving us a lot to think about. Director of Litigation Advocacy at New Haven Legal Assistance. We appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we learn more about concrete as investigators in Florida look for answers in the Surfside, Florida building collapse. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Since the Surfside condo collapsed nearly a month ago, millions of pounds of concrete have been removed from the 12-story structure. And officials are still trying to determine the cause, but questions have been raised about the materials used in the building's foundation and how it may have responded to environmental impacts in the last 40 years. Joining us now with more context about concrete is something we probably don't think much about. On Zoom with us, Goli Nosoni, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at University of New Haven. Goli, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. As I mentioned, we probably don't think much about concrete. It's something we rely on. Can you describe this material for us? Uh, Concrete is a composite material. Concrete is made of aggregate, which is the stone we use both large. If I want to explain it in a simple way, it's a large aggregate um, which uh, and sand, which is a small kind of aggregate. And also we glue them with the cementitious material and water together, which cementitious material is usually cement and um, or we can use other cementitious materials such as fly ash or other materials, uh, silica film or byproduct of other industry. Concrete is a very strong material and it is not actually not expected to 
in a normal situation to any building that is concrete to collapse in 40 years. Mm. And so when we saw that video of Surfside collapsing, you know, it's really disturbing. And so talk about how when buildings are put up, how engineers, what they use to reinforce that concrete goalie. Concrete is a very brittle material. As strong as it is, it's a very brittle material, it means it cannot carry tension anymore. And most of the beams in the building or slab that we are sitting on it, they have the bottom side in tension, sometimes the top. Now, since the concrete cannot carry any tension, we have to reinforce it with uh, steel because the steel is very strong carrying tension. Now, you put the steel inside the concrete and you cover it with concrete, um, in the bottom side or the top side, wherever the tension is, to make sure that it's protected from environment because steel is actually pro-corrosion. And, but steel is very safe inside the concrete. If the concrete cover doesn't spoil due to environmental factor, um, the steel and the concrete member should carry pretty much a, um, leave um, 70 to 100 years. I mean, mm. they carry the loads that they are supposed to. We build actually um, concrete um, members depend on the safety factor. If you want to put it in a simple way, depend on how important the member is and how good as an engineer we can design them uh, between the 1.5 to 2.5 safety factors. Some members such as columns are very important for a building because if a column collapse or anything happen, half of the building may collapse. But some, uh, then the safety factor is 2.5. Some members, such as, for example, beams, um, if they collapse, if one beam collapse, it may not have a catastrophic result as we saw. Mm -hmm. And maybe only, for example, one story collapse on top of the other one. That's why the beams are usually made uh, kind of, you know, build with a factor of safety of 1.5 to 1.7. So when we look again at what happened at the Surfside condo made up of three towers, it's the south building closest to the ocean that collapsed. So a lot of people are wondering about the environment affecting the condominium. As a, an engineer, what are you thinking about when you see that tragedy and, and what happened? I mean, it's, um, uh, it's a very sad, actually, uh, kind of, you know, uh, incident. And uh, But um, concrete... Uh, as I mentioned, water we use in making concrete, but water mm. is what makes and breaks concrete. Now, concrete, if you want to think about it as a simple way, it's like a Swiss cheese. Now, when you think about the Swiss cheese, you think about the pores and the holes inside the Swiss cheese. We saw them in the cartoons. Now, concrete, uh, not the, uh, kind of the aggregate part of the concrete, but the cement paste of the concrete is very porous. It is very interconnected pore. And the concrete is very active, um, chemically active. The, in these pores are, I assume in Florida, they are saturated with the water because of the relative humidity should be very high. Now these pores having a pH of um, 13 and half 14. This is a very highly alkaline media. And in the high, uh, highly alkaline media, the steel is very safe. Now, there are many things that can come to these pores. Look at um, thinking about the Swiss cheese, any ions that can be harmful and change that pH or chemistry of the concrete, it can make concrete actually cracks, spall or damaged or loses even its strength. 
Now, thinking about the Florida having a very highly marine environment, I would say that uh, probably chloride is the most um, ion that you have it in the air. I actually read it in the reports uh, that it, uh, in the news that it was actually even flooded uh, the basement, probably with the salt water. And this chloride, if they diffuse inside the concrete, is going to reduce the pH, and also. It's not just reducing the pH, it's going to take the protective uh, film or kind of a paint, assumingly, on the steel surface out and it still start to corrode. When the steel start to corrode, uh, the corrosion product, they have a volume to four to six times of uh, normal steel. These, they have nowhere to go. These pores have some capacity. They apply a pressure on the concrete cover and eventually concrete cover is gonna crack and spall. After the concrete crack and spalls, then steel bars are exposed, then that's catastrophic because um, they can actually corrode very, very fast. And if you lose the surface area, remember some of these members are made only are designed only with the safety factor of 1.5, then if you're losing a good amount of surface area with corrosion, then there is nothing to carry tension anymore and it can collapse easily. You're hearing Goli Nosoni here on Where We Live. She's Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of New Haven. As we talk more about concrete and building foundations in the wake of that Surfside condo collapse, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's... let's uh, uh, Zoom back into Connecticut because, you know, part of our state is coastal. We've got all kinds of weather. And so when we think about the impacts of the environment on uh, concrete, I mean, what should we be thinking about in terms of uh, the reliability and safety of our buildings along the shore, Goalie? Uh, concrete, actually, I want to say concrete is um, a safe material. And any cracked concrete doesn't mean that's unsafe. Concrete is very brittle and it is cracked under its own weight. Uh, then if you see a cracked concrete, it is impossible that you see uncracked concrete, let's say that. However, in a Connecticut, we do have many factors that can actually um, harm the concrete and durability of the concrete is very huge issue. Any concrete that you can see it is cracked is not because it it was not strong enough because it was not durable enough. Now, in the state of Connecticut, first we are in the coastal area, marine area that you have salt water. If the chloride that is in the salt um, diffuses to the concrete, eventually it's going to make corrosion. Now, there are many ways that we can actually protect concrete from um, the salt water. Is If you use a good quality concrete, good quality concrete, when you use least amount of water possible in your concrete, these pores are going to be very small. Then the, if the actually chloride wants to diffuse inside the concrete, it's gonna take 20 years to reach to that threshold value that the start the corrosion. However, in Connecticut, we do have also freestyle cycles. Now, freestyle cycles is not going to be for building, it's mostly for, for pavement. Uh, I mean, we all saw these potholes after a bad winter because water goes inside these pores and it starts to freeze. And when it starts to freeze, it's expand, apply pressure, and then thaws during the day and freeze overnight again. And this freeze-thaw cycle is going to apply a pressure 
in concrete and it's going to spoil. When the concrete is spoiled and rebar get exposed, that's a time that is dangerous. Then we do have both marine environment free stuff. I want to um, say that also wet dry cycle can damage concrete. It's not just um, any harmful ion that it, that is inside the water. Just the fresh water, if a concrete goes to wet dry cycle, eventually it's going to get damaged. Now, um, for the Florida situation, they went to wet uh, dry cycle as well because the as I heard in the news and I read in the news that uh, the basement was always flooded. And then that can be another reason that the concrete is actually got damaged and also spoiled and the rebar got exposed. Mm. You know, earlier we talked to an attorney about tenant rights and housing and building codes. And so how do you think this Florida tragedy will impact conversations in our state about safety of buildings? Because we know when we've got aging infrastructure, whenever people see the cost associated with sometimes remediation, people scoff at the cost or they they refrain from doing it. And we can see what the, the long term, uh, what the consequences of that is just by looking at what Surfside goalie. Uh, I have to say uh, most of the concrete structures, they are built to stand um, for 100 years. Of course, the maintenance is required and um, maintenance had to take actually take very seriously. If you see exposed rebar or you see a concrete spall, it has to be um, evaluated to see what's the reason and then concrete need to be cleaned and patched. Now, all of these concrete members about the building code that Shelley was saying, most of the concrete structure are built according to American Concrete Institution, which is, I don't want to say is a federal code, but it's a concrete building code in the United States. And not with the local code. We do have to follow the local code for small uh, things, but the concrete as a strength-wise is built with the American Concrete Institution code, which is ACI code. And the ACI code is revised um, very actually every couple of years. It's not that, it's not revised uh, and it is an old code. No, everything is coming new. Although civil engineers have a tendency to follow the path that they know it worked, but it is actually being kind of revised every couple of years. We don't uh, follow for strength-wise the building code. I was actually stunned to know that the buildings are not inspected regularly the, actually um, that much. But that's kind of, you know, I didn't know that the building, but I know the bridges, they are being inspected in a regular basis and the inspection takes very seriously. These are the public transportation and the DOTs are inspecting the bridges and especially anything that belongs to the state, it is inspected mm-hmm. in a regular basis. And things actually got very serious if um, any damage is there. Well, Goli Nassoni, we thank you for joining us here on Where We Live, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of New Haven. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Now, coming up, some Connecticut homeowners have been dealing with a lot of stress. Their homes have crumbling foundations. We get an update on how the state is helping these residents. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a 2019 report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office that found at least 1,600 Connecticut homes have crumbling foundations. There's a mineral that's causing these foundations to fail. But we wanted to, up to get an update on how the state's helping Connecticut residents who are experiencing this. Joining us now on Zoom is Michael McGlaris, who's principal with Michael McGlaris & Company, also superintendent of the Connecticut Foundation Solutions Indemnity Company. This is a captive insurance company that was established by the state to protect homeowners suffering from crumbling foundations. Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you. So essentially, your company, again, formed in 2018. The state requested that there be a program to focus on payment of property claims associated with crumbling foundations in Connecticut. Remind us briefly you know, how we got here. What's the mineral that's at the root of these issues? Well, you know, Professor Nosani said something very important a, a moment ago. Water makes or breaks concrete. I actually wrote that down, and she is entirely correct. And in this case, it's water reacting with a mineral called pyrotite, in fact, reactive pyrotite, that causes, um, that's found in concrete aggregate, very common, uh, an overabundance of that, and the wrong kind of uh, humidity, constant humidity in water, causes uh, homeowners' foundations to, uh, to crack, to peel, and we think at some point it becomes structurally unsafe. And uh, in the northeast corner of Connecticut, uh, there is a serious, uh, very serious economic and, of course, a human problem as well in the, in the crumbling concrete crisis. When we, I remember when this story broke several years ago, there was a lot of attention on a quarry and where uh, the cement uh, was coming from uh, for the building of some homes. And so uh, what can you tell us uh, now? I believe that quarry has since closed and we talk about homes in Northeast Connecticut that um, have experienced this. Is this problem contained now? What do we know? Uh, you know the old expression, uh, Lucy, we don't know what we don't know? Well, it applies here. There's so much about this crisis that we know, and there's even more that we know. But to, to sort of draw a roadmap for your listeners, imagine uh, that Interstate 84 in Hartford, uh, beginning in Hartford and running up, of course, to the Massachusetts border. Imagine that's a tree trunk, and that the left and right exits off Interstate 84 are the branches of that tree. Well, for all intents and purposes, this crisis begins roughly around exit 63 on 84. If you drive off exit 63 and turn left or right, and you go 15 miles in either direction, or exit 64, 65, all the way up through Union and, uh, you know, exit 63 before you hit Sturbridge Village, in either direction, this crisis affects uh, homeowners uh, in that area. And, you know, something you said earlier, I, I wrote it down as well, uh, you said, I think, to the effect, concrete is something we don't think about. Uh, how true, right? All of us are perhaps sit seated at home today or in our home offices under this pandemic. Uh, underneath us is a concrete foundation that we may not be thinking much about. But the people who have a crumbling foundation, that's, in fact, all they think about. Uh, it is a terrible human as well as financial crisis. We've known about it for some time, but we have been addressing it um, at CIPSIC, which is the sort of acronym we use for Connecticut Foundation Solutions. We've been addressing it in effect since January 10 of 2019. And as of this morning, we have uh, 330 families back in their homes with a safe and secure foundation in less than 27 months. 
Uh, you mentioned that the found we, we rely on foundations and uh, the stress that these homeowners uh, have experienced. I can't even imagine it. Uh, but I had cited a, a stat from this GAO report that at least 1,600 homes in Connecticut have been affected. Is this a much larger issue, and how is the state going to pay for this? Because if I remember, homeowner insurances, these companies did not want to step in and help. They did not. Um, I've been in the commercial, or I've been in the insurance business for almost 45 years. I know the insurance business better than I know any other business. Um, I don't take any position on whether or not uh, commercial homeowners insurance policies should have responded. I only know the facts. We have, as of this morning, 1,781 claimants registered in our system. So to be candid, Lucy, we've got more than 1,600, right? We know that for sure. That GAO report is, is a little old. It's 2019, and I spent a lot of time with the GAO people. Uh, I'm predicting, and the data seems to predict, that in this first wave of crumbling foundations, we're estimating about 3,000 to 3,500 families. The top end of the wave, which will happen, we think, about eight years to 12 years from now, we'll have another three to 4,000 more. That's a huge number. What does that mean? That means six to 7,000 families or more whose home equity uh, goes from you know full equity, market cost equity in their home, to literally 30 to 40% of that overnight. So if you're planning on selling your home and having it, you know, fund your part of your retirement, uh, that home equity is gone. Not only is that home equity gone under this crumbling foundations crisis, but you've asked the town in question where you live in the northeast corner for a tax abatement, because obviously your house is worth an awful lot less than it was even a few minutes ago before you discovered the problem. So this has a ripple effect through our economy. Uh, the, the commercial insurance market has turned these claimants down. That's why Governor Malloy signed a bill on October 31 of 2017 to create this great public-private partnership. We are getting, uh, we've just learned, we're getting another $100 million to add to the almost $200 million that we are going to receive uh, through the state legislature. We're enormously grateful for that. Do I need more than $300 million? <laughs> the answer is I need between $550 and $600 million to do this job. But it's also going to take at least another decade to address it directly. So where does this money come from? Uh, remind us, I thought that there was a bill that was passed, I think it's now law, where uh, other homeowners around our state, we in our policy, does some of that money go to help this fund, to help uh, homeowners who are dealing with the crumbling foundations, Michael? It, it sure does. The, 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 the most important and the largest part of this is funded through the Connecticut Bond Commission, state of Connecticut's floating bonds, and we're using the, the revenue uh, that's been allotted to us, those are bonds, those are revenue bonds, to, to finance the, the replacement of these homes. Uh, something else, which is really important, I think you were alluding uh, to it a moment ago, is that all of us on this call, of course, own a home or an apartment somewhere, or a condo, and we're all buying homeowners insurance. And each one of us, you and I, Lucy, are paying $12 per year. It's being tacked on to our homeowners premium that $12 is being paid directly to us. It's about $10.6 million a year. That's helping homeowners where we have an average replacement cost of about $154,000 per foundation. So it is a true public-private partnership. CIFSIC, the captive, is a private company with its own board of directors. 
But these funds are coming from people like you and me, of course, from taxpayers in the state. Uh, it's a, a, an innovative way, and it's in fact gotten worldwide recognition in the, in the captive insurance industry. It's an innovative way to address a social and economic problem that the commercial insurance industry essentially has turned its back on. Yeah, and I know you said you, you don't take a position on that, but it you know, as a homeowner, so many of us that are paying for homeowner insurance to when, when something like this happens, it's catastrophic. And the idea that these uh, homeowner policies, um, they're not cut. It's, it's really, uh, it is really infuriating. Without this fund, without this public partnership, private uh, public partnership, where would these homeowners be left with? Uh, very simply, in some cases, structural failure. In some cases, you would end up uh, uh, Professor Nassoni made an important comment a moment ago, cracked concrete is not necessarily unsafe concrete. She, of course, is a, uh, an acknowledged specialist, but that, that's that important phrase, cracked concrete is not necessarily unsafe concrete, uh, is important. However, as someone who spends uh, 8 to 12 hours a week touring construction sites where I'm replacing these foundations, I can tell you that we have condominiums and other uh, you know, buildings with multiple uh, tenants and, and owners on them, uh, where uh, I'm estimating and my engineers are estimating that we would have an unsafe, uh, non-livable, non-viable condition 10 to 12 months out if they're not replaced. The very good news here, um, uh, the great horrible tragedy at Surfside, as you know, that was a tall building, Lucy, the, the mm -hmm. floors collapsed on each other, which caused enormous and, and sudden loss of life. Here in the northeast corner of Connecticut, which is relatively still rural, we have a number of condominiums, more than 400 that we know about condominium units affected by the crumbling foundations crisis. The very good news is they're not high-rise buildings and the condos aren't stacked, uh, but it doesn't mean that people's lives aren't torn apart uh, by this crisis. I can walk into a foundation in, in the basement of a condominium complex. I did that recently uh, in a small town in northeast Connecticut. I literally grabbed six feet of concrete and peeled it off the wall. I then took my hand and stuck it through the crack uh, up to my armpit, exposing daylight, which means obviously the next time it rains, and it has rained for a week here in northeastern Connecticut, uh, water's pouring through that. It is a terrible, terrible crisis. And without state funds, we would have literally hundreds and hundreds of personal bankruptcies in the northeast corner. That's the, that's the extent of the tragedy. And what about the federal government? Uh, is there any um, hope that they this, the federal government can help with this issue and it's not just on the backs of state residents? Uh, we've approached both before my tenure as superintendent and uh, subsequent to when I began leading this, uh, this effort, we've approached the federal government on a number of occasions and we have, uh, particularly FEMA, and we have been rebuffed. We've been turned down. The, the Trump administration was uh, unhelpful to us. There seems to be uh, some inkling of hope in the Biden uh, administration. I had a talk early on with uh, some Biden folks before uh, the inauguration about this model, this public-private captive model, Lucy, and I went into some detail with them discussing how this thing works and uh, how it might be uh, useful in the future with respect to all kinds of infrastructure. And remember, or you may not know, in fact, but it's important to comment that the bill that Governor Malloy passed or signed 
uh, in October of 2017, authorized us to replace residential foundations. There is nothing in our charter that says that we're replacing a school's foundation or a firehouse or a library. I think that the ticket to federal funding is the pyrotite crumbling foundations crisis as it's discovered in public buildings. You know, we talk about infrastructure, we talk about failing infrastructure, we talk about the need to focus on infrastructure. We know in the Northeast corner of Connecticut and elsewhere that we have public buildings that are suffering through the concrete crumbling foundations crisis. We need to get to those. And I think the answer to your question about federal funding lies in common use buildings actually. Well, we're going to have uh, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy on where we live this coming Wednesday, as well as yes. other members of the delegation. We'll be sure to ask him about that. And we thank you, Michael McGlaris, Superintendent of Connecticut Foundation Solutions Indemnity Company. Again, this is the captive insurance company established to protect homeowners, help those who are suffering from crumbling foundation foundations. We will tweet out a link and make sure we have a link on our website to uh, your uh, company, Michael, for people who are seeking help. We thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Goodbye. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>